Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Key London councils swing left, ending decades of Conservative dominance. Sadiq Khan calls for rent freezes as the Bank of England hints at looming recession. New levelling up and planning reforms outlined in the state opening of Parliament. And a little-known Islington Council architect wins the prestigious MJ Long Prize. My name is Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The London. My guest this week here at Bureau in Design District is Leanne Hartley. Leanne is Director of Social Sustainability Consultancy, MEND, and founder of the collaborative women-led network, Urbanistas, which is celebrating its 10-year anniversary. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Last week, the country took to the polls to vote in the local elections, which saw the Conservatives take heavy losses, especially in the capital. The party of government lost a staggering 480 local council seats throughout England, Wales and Scotland. And in London, the number of elected Conservatives hit a damning record low, with historic dominance of Wandsworth, Westminster and Barnet town halls all evaporating. The results and the reasons behind the Conservatives' disastrous performance have been dissected by the national media and the Twitterati. Uh, The AJ has run an in-depth analysis of how, in the case of Westminster City Council, the contentious Marble Arch Mound may have sealed the Conservatives' fate. In London, just 401 Conservatives won council seats, leaving the party most in control of outer suburban boroughs, especially those who voted leave in the Brexit referendum, such as Bexley, Bromley and Hillingdon. Furthermore, seven councils in the capital now have no Conservative councillors at all, forming a significant threat to the party's decision-making power across vast swathes of the inner city. As predicted, national issues such as the cost of living crisis, party gate and contentious plans to ship asylum seekers to Rwanda were all top of the agenda when it came to voting. However, more local issues, including low traffic neighbourhoods, that's LTNs, and pledges to deliver more council housing also swayed results. Tower Hamlet's mayoral race was won by the outspoken and famously anti-LTN Luftarahman. The independent candidate previously held the same office until he was removed for electoral fraud in 2015 and has made a comeback following attacks on LTNs for allegedly increasing congestion and CO2 emissions. 
Elsewhere, there were some small wins for the Conservatives, including in Croydon, where the party's Jason Perry was named mayor. An outcome that came as little surprise to many observers following the Labour-led council's ongoing financial issues, which have seen its house-building arm brick by brick wound up. That's something we've discussed here on Lundown many times before. On last week's election special with Jenna Goldberg and Sean Adams, we zoomed in on three boroughs which looked up for grabs, Lambeth, Barnet and Westminster, all previously held by Conservative councils. All three were won by Labour, an outcome which, although predicted, still sent shockwaves across the capital and took the front page of Friday's Evening Standard. In Westminster, the re-elected Labour councillor and new cabinet member Jack Barraclough said MVRDV's ill-fated and much-mocked £6 million Marble Arch Mound was a key factor in the Conservatives losing power over the borough. Speaking to the AJ, he said, quote, The Conservatives shredded their reputation as being careful with taxpayers' money with the mountain. And he went on to add, We put Marble Arch Mound on all our leaflets. Um, so, Leanne, to some commentators, it has seemed little surprise the Conservatives struggled to win votes, especially with the ongoing cost of living crisis and the recent Partygate scandal. Uh, but I think a lot of people, the Conservatives included, were pretty surprised at the scale of the losses. In London, Issues including low traffic neighbourhoods, housing and the infamous Marble Arch Mound may have significantly impacted the vote. What do you make of the fact that so many built environment issues were so influential in the ballot box when typically they can be thought to be quite marginal? Well, um, I think the answer is it'll be different for, for different boroughs. Um, but um, ultimately, I, I think people care really deeply about where they live and their access to services. National issues are influential, but from a local perspective, there are examples of built environment issues that either way influenced the local vote last week. For example, new housing development on Greenfield land and LTNs arguably enhanced the Conservative support in Enfield, uh, a borough in which I live. And the financial mismanagement of urban schemes proved to be toxic for at least two established councils, the Labour in Croydon, largely a result of their failed intervention in the property market, and in Westminster, where, as you say, the flagship mound proved so controversial. Ultimately, though, there's a view that um, a change in administration is healthy for democracy and avoids the stagnation of approach and philosophy. And clearly the people of Westminster, Wandsworth, Barnet, as well as Croydon and Harrow, were keen for a new approach. And they were willing to change long-standing voting habits to initiate this. Yet while local elections tend to focus on hyper-local issues, there was, I would say, definitely the sense that frustrations with politics at the national level did feature into people's decision-making, i.e. the lack of trust, the layering of scandal on scandal, has really revealed a government that's out of control and also out of touch. In Wandsworth and Barnet, maybe, the national frustration won out. But I agree that the, the built environment has presented an influential factor, and I can't help think that underpinning this is a focus on public health and well-being and concerns over climate change that's been brought into sharp focus with COVID-19, that's still ongoing, let's remember, and our recovery from that. Uh, so um, the built environment, I mean, it was our sanctuary, wasn't it, with lockdown after lockdown. And it really opened our eyes to how important it is to have access to clean, safe and tranquil environments for our physical and our mental well-being. And indeed, how difficult it's been for people that don't have access to that. So tackling air quality, tackling pollution, tackling safety on our roads, 
highlight the built environment as a public health issue. And whilst the specifics around issues like LTNs and active travel massively reflect local issues and politics, at the heart of these initiatives are concerns with really macro structural wicked problems about how we are to address the climate emergency and the impacts on our future way of life. So these go beyond short term political cycles. And it'll be fascinating to see how this plays out and what demonstrable change a change guard will bring with an hour being a long time in politics these days. I've had I have a feeling that it's been really hard to have medium term horizon on anything at the moment. But here we have councils changing hands over people's concerns over the long term and who they trust to handle that. That's absolutely fascinating. And I really like the fact that you zoomed in on uh, the cost of living crisis being a major issue, especially affecting uh, Londoners. It was certainly prominent in the campaigns of all the parties. Um, And sadly, it's about to get a whole lot worse for everyone. Um, what kind of things do you think councils and government can be doing to mitigate some of the impacts uh, on their constituencies? Um, and what sort of challenges will all London local authorities, but especially those that have recently changed colour, face over the next four years as they attempt to deliver and improve services in such a challenging context for our cities? Well, look, councils are in a difficult position. I mean, the over 10 years of financial austerity were really very hard with with significant cutbacks on revenue support from central government and an underlying philosophy that they need to be financially self-sufficient as organisations. They've been working their built environments the nth degree, trying to amalgamate services and improve service delivery. How much can we expect councils to do? Where is the revenue coming from? The ability to have a macro influence is limited without cash. Yes, you can work the estate even harder, but some councils will be better and able to do this than others. I mean, Westminster has lots of money coming in, but it also has significant pockets of deprivation. They've been doing this for years, not just as a recent response. There's been a long term squeeze on councils and now we're putting more pressure on councils to tackle and address again the failings of central government. What might be seen as a quick fist by central government, for example, making commercial property more affordable or by granting rates holidays to alleviate pressure on occupiers, has the indirect impact of cutting revenue, which in turn impacts on service delivery. I mean, by and large, I think London boroughs have been very entrepreneurial and innovative in using the civic estate to enhance economic and social value outcomes. Surplus land, for example, has been released for housing initiatives and been partnering with other public sector bodies, health being a key example, under the One Public Estate programme, so that they can be more efficient in local community service delivery. Um, Avoiding duplication of services, better joined at working between the health sector and third sectors, being more collaborative to make best use of scarce resources are things that could be done. But they're easier said than done. They're already doing the best they can. Central government needs to be learning from and trusting local government more. They are the ones on the front line. They are the ones on the sharp end. They know better what works and what doesn't work. Fund them and free them to do this. The more central government frees up councils to be more in charge of their finances and strategic decision making, the better for local areas in the long term. The Bank of England has warned of 10% inflation and a near recession as early as the end of this year, as it raises interest rates yet again. London's mayor has meanwhile promised to take the cost of living crisis head on with a call for rent controls over private tenancies. 
While the UK was in the polling booths last week, the Bank of England raised the interest rate from 0.75 to 1% in a bid to cool the economy and curtail the spiralling inflation which has recently been made even worse by Covid lockdowns in China and the war in Ukraine. By raising interest rates and therefore making it more expensive for businesses and private individuals to borrow money, the bank is hoping it can reduce the current immense pressure on a limited pool of goods and services and labour, which is resulting in rocketing prices, something all of us have felt recently. This story was reported by The Telegraph, by CNBC and The Guardian, which has also published a comprehensive breakdown of the interest rate rise and a handy forecast of the possible financial consequences to come. The hike in interest rates brings with it the highest cost of borrowing since the 2008 financial crash and warnings that the price of energy bills could jump by another 40% in October. That's on top of the 54% increase last month. All this spells perilous times ahead for Britons and, of course, for Londoners. Uh, and experts warn it is those on the middle and lowest incomes who'll suffer the most. So what can be done to mitigate the scale of the crisis? Well, London Mayor Sadiq Khan has stepped forward with one possible answer. It's something he has actually tried before. Earlier this year, Khan called on the government to grant him the powers to introduce private rent controls in the capital. It was a plea he also made to ministers back in 2019, but to no success. His proposal to freeze the rent paid by tenants to private landlords for two years would save the average household around £3,000, providing a lifeline for struggling people during an unprecedented time of escalating costs. That's according to data supplied by City Hall. Khan said, quote, Private renters make up nearly a third of everyone living in the capital, and they're set to be hit by a devastating combination of price and bill rises. Too often, the needs of private renters are ignored by both landlords and the government. A rent freeze would, he argued, give people a chance to get back on their feet after the pandemic. So, Leanne, private renting has exploded in London. Since the 1990s, the proportion of Londoners renting privately has more than doubled. And the average private rent for a one-bed property in the capital is more than that of a three-bed home in every other region of the UK. Can you explain what are private rent controls and what sort of an impact would they have in London? And also, why are they so controversial when they're standard in many other comparable cities, including Berlin and parts of New York? Well, private rent controls are about achieving a balance between uh, landlords getting a fair return on their property investment with protecting tenants from unreasonable rent increases. I mean, beyond the social housing sector, there are no rent controls in the UK. This was swept away in the 1987 Landlord and Tenancy Reform Act, which created the Assured Shorthold Tenancy and effectively removed security of tenure for private renters. Now, the 1987 reform was in response to years of very restrictive and controlled residential tenancy legislation, for example, granting security of tenure and tenancies for life which made it a significant risk for property owners to let property for residential purposes. I mean, it effectively killed the private housing supply. So what the 1987 Act did was to effectively move from one end of the spectrum to the other. And this created an absolute boom in the private rental sector. Now, the market has moved on significantly in the last 35 years since that legislation has come in. And the London property market and developers have become very reliant on bill to let as a means of shifting their stock. 
I think the controversy and resistance to change is mainly around the number of smaller investors who retain maximum flexibility over their asset. There is a worry that blanket radical reform could strip the private investor supply out of the market. And unfortunately, this could accelerate the housing crisis. Now, there's some logic in this risk. And the solution really is is to introduce gradual reform so that we can align with this middle ground that Germany uh, and and America have in their approach, rather than, than sort of the uber controlled 1970s model. Now, Sadiq Khan's ideas on cap and rent could go some way towards containing those costs from tenants. And that's that's not to be sniffed at. But it will not appeal to landlords um, with a prospect of rising rates and therefore their costs. It could mean more landlords leaving the market. And that could mean tenants losing access to vital local housing and property options anyway. So I think it's definitely right for reform. Uh, The market's definitely moved on since 1987, but we don't need short-term remedies to tip us back to the other end of the spectrum again. It's about building long-term, sustainable solutions. Fantastic. Um, Now, what's interesting, the Bank of England says it's treading a narrow path to steer the UK through this financially turbulent time. However, the bank is still predicting gross domestic product to shrink in the last quarter of this year. Uh, If economic output shrinks for two consecutive quarters, then we're technically in a recession. Um, So, Leanne, what could be the implications of a fresh downturn for Londoners? Um, we we lived through it in uh, post two thousand eight. It was pretty bad, um, especially when costs of living and housing already so high, probably even higher now than they were back then. Um, and also, what sort of longer term measures beyond private rent controls could make London's economy more resilient for what is looking like an increasingly unpredictable future? Wow, I mean, so much to unpack there. I mean, um, I, I do think a rent cap is a high risk short term fix in that the cost of borrowing, as I said, mortgage repayments for landlords, um, increasing as a result of interest payment rises. I think it will force private landlords to sell. Um, Will that lead to a glut of properties flooding the market and reducing affordability for buyers even more? I mean, possibly not if the freeze is only for two years. But as I said, major central government reform is required. uh, And this needs to allow tenants and landlords the flexibility and the ability to enter into longer term tenancies For example, with a balance to meet the needs of uh, landlords and tenants, which which suits both both of them, or it just won't work. I mean, I think we could also incentivise institutions, for example, to provide uh, rental supply. Um, And they're not at the mercy of of the vagaries of, of individual circumstances. Institutions have more checks and balances um, to underpin their investment. But I think, you know, the private rental sector is here to stay. It serves a purpose and it works in other parts of the world. But we do need to adapt to a modern context and circumstances. And we do need to address the cultural aspects too. Um, So, yes, I I think, you know, for me, it's about landlords being able to be incentivised to offer that longer term lease and enable that cultural shift away from restricting these, these short term leases. This week, Prince Charles delivered the Queen's speech at the state opening of Parliament, emphasising the importance of getting the UK economy back on track to tackle the rising cost of living. This is a story which has appeared across the national media and was covered in a special live BBC News television programme and prompted a flurry of comments from experts across the built environment. The Queen's speech, which forms part of the ceremonial state opening of Parliament, allows the government to lay out its legislative plan for the year ahead. This year, it was delivered by Prince Charles, the Prince of Wales, uh, who later stepped in after the Queen was unable to attend due to mobility concerns. 
The speech outlined 38 new laws, ranging from pledges to support the UK Ukrainian people to new laws smoothing the Brexit bill transition, and of course, long-awaited legislation to enact the levelling up agenda, um, something which had won support for Boris Johnson's Conservative Party in the general election three years ago. The speech, which inevitably was designed to entice back disenfranchised Conservative voters and MPs, followed their disastrous local election results. Um, It also proposed a bill containing tougher penalties for protest groups, including Insulate Britain and Extinction Rebellion. Um, That's something we've discussed a lot before on this show. Uh, The levelling up agenda featured heavily as the government set out watered down plans to reform planning regulations, including the introduction of a locally set non-negotiable levy, which will be placed on developers and will help councils deliver essential infrastructure, including schools and roads. Over the weekend, Michael Gove, who is Secretary of State for Leveling Up Housing and Communities, trailed some of the speech's contents in an interview with the Daily Telegraph, in which he said the failure to boost home ownership was a key reason for the Conservatives' failure at the polls. He also outlined the influence of Poundbury on his levelling up vision. Poundbury, spearheaded by Prince Charles and designed by Luxembourg architect Leon Creer, is an experimental town in Dorset, featuring almost entirely traditional architecture. The Telegraph remarked that, quote, Poundbury's importance to Mr Gove is due to the fact that he sees the town as an embodiment of Biden, the key elements he wants to incorporate in Britain's new homes. Uh, That is beauty, infrastructure, democracy, environment and neighbourhood, spells out the word Biden, B-I-D-E-N. Other bills pledge to strengthen landlord rights in the UK, which will give them new and stronger grounds for eviction surrounding rent arrears, which is when rent is not paid, uh, and also shorter notice periods for antisocial behaviour, all of which place private renters in an ever more precarious position. Other bits of the legislation, uh, legislative agenda include giving councils the right to sell off empty properties on local high streets and the potential for street votes, allowing people to vote on design codes governing development locally. There was, however, very little in the opening of Parliament which addressed the cost of living crisis directly, uh, with subsequent press releases simply pointing to what the government has already done. Uh, That was something that the Labour leader Keir Starmer picked up on. Um, He said, quote, times are tough for working people, but they are much tougher than they should be. Uh, Some 12 years of the Conservatives has meant low economic growth, high inflation and high taxes, uh, he said. So, Leanne, what do you make of the legislative agenda set out in the Queen's speech? So, uh, in the Queen's speech, we had some headline-grabbing initiatives for the built environment. But as ever, the devil is in the detail and the fine print of how these policies will operate. For example, levelling up delivery is being passed to councils. Now, will they get the additional resources required to enable delivery? It is worth noting that levelling up support to date has overwhelmingly been capital, not revenue. And why would a private landlord keep a shop empty? The challenge in recent years is not the level of rent, but actually a combination of a lack of demand. I mean, think back to the demise of the high street store, BHS, and the as yet unreformed level of business rates. We therefore await with interest the details of the non-domestic rating bill. However, of course, this leads to a reduction in revenue for councils. This is the circular argument uh, that it could impact on service delivery for some councils reliant on property income to support their service delivery. But however, the investment in the right type of infrastructure is really welcome. But I think this needs to go beyond the macro headline grabbing 
uh, likes of high speed two towards the more micro level infrastructure that we need uh, around things like schools, community centres, local roads and our traffic calming measures to advance the active travel and carbon reduction objectives we have. So it's interesting because the speech uh, it outlines yet more planning reforms, albeit watered down from what was originally um, the plan a year ago. Um, now, the planning system in the UK has been overhauled time and time again, especially since uh, David Cameron was prime minister. I can't, can't remember a time when planning reform wasn't on the agenda. Uh, last year, uh, Robert Jenrick proposed a highly criticised planning white paper. It was later dropped. Um, why have successive governments focused on planning reform, especially as a means of solving the housing crisis? Um, and why has such an approach so far failed to yield really any significant results? Oh, the planning system. It seems to be an unwritten rule. You get a new prime minister, you get a new government. And obviously, the first thing they want to do is unpick, play around and tinker with the planning system. Now, um, OK, so the housing crisis and the challenges on increasing supply can be traced largely to a series of conflicting policies, which are, you know, noble and isolation, I think, but often work and conflict with each other. Uh, planning system reform often seeks uh, to find a short-term fix to a particular issue, but unfortunately this can create another. For example, increasing affordable housing targets can make some development inviolable for developers, and this in turn reduces the overall velocity of that supply. So why can't the government adopt a ground zero approach and create a brand new planning system from scratch? Well, one of the challenges is, is the sheer billions of pounds that's tied up in the existing system. And even a slight change ha could have a major impact on the value. Uh, and local and central government have a vested interest in that value to the local taxation system of protecting the value in their built estate. So I think if anything would help, it would be better to make planning more process driven uh, rather than political. The delivery of housing needs to be left to planning teams to ensure that the schemes are in accordance with local plans that have been developed with local consultation and the finer grain of design and the supporting infrastructure it requires. Now, lots of councils have taken a long time to build their capacity and supply chain to deliver social housing. It's not a tap you can switch on and off. It takes a long time to do this. Croydon have tried this. Spexley is starting to do this. Cander and are, are making great strides. And people think building social housing is easy. It's not. It's very complicated. Government needs to recognise this. And following the right to buy policies of the 1980s, here we are again talking about the, being the sharp end of this sort of history. An entire generation of public house builders was lost. And we're now effectively starting to try and replace that. And again, pepper potting of private ownership in council estates. We now need to buy those leaseholders back. So a historic policy is now hindering that supply. One of the proposals put forward, obviously, it relates to these new rules around design codes, which will allow local residents to have their say on developments in their area, the so-called like street votes policy. Um, now, pointing to this model, Gove said, quote, uh, you don't get that sort of resistance if you've got a community like Poundbury. Um, I don't know. I've actually been to Poundbury and met people who did complain about the next homes because the next homes blocked the view from their home. Uh, so I don't know quite quite how many people he's talked to in Poundbury, but the quote goes on. Um, you get a resistance, effectively resistance against new development in area um, to it from when a few modernist architects who sneer at what the rest of us actually like. Uh, so effectively blaming uh, uh, grassroots opposition to new homes on modernist architects and their influence on the outcomes, uh, visual outcomes of the buildings. Um, Leanne, what do you make of policies like these and also that kind of rhetoric that the housing secretary is using? Um, 
I mean, I have to ask this. Could it just be a, a distraction from the real issues? I mean, we're hearing right now there's, there's 4 million children living in poverty in the UK. Uh, 55,000 children and families were evicted from their homes in the last three months of 2021. Um, is this all just a, a kind of epic distraction from perhaps a more, a more hard-hitting, direct way of levelling up? Yes, uh, frankly. <laughs> I mean, is this really about design and aesthetic appearance? Surely... It's about the wider benefit of good design on things like reducing and mitigating flood risk, providing healthy environments that promote and support our well-being and inclusion, and also the impact of a scheme on existing infrastructures such as schools, housing and health. So, yes, I think arguably it is a distraction, you know, a built environment culture war, uh, if you like. Um, the lack of capacity and choice uh, can enable an environment for poor design decisions to prosper. So for me, engaging people is absolutely key. But you don't ask them at five minutes to midnight to rubber stamp what you've already decided they're getting. Uh, communities are all too often bystanders in the development process, despite being profoundly affected by the changes that process can bring. The planning process can be a mystery shrouded in tiny fonts on signs on lampposts, aggressive institutional speak, over the top bureaucracy. Instead of being receivers of development, local people should be agents of change, helping to define and steer the, the shape their own neighbourhoods take. So I think we need to be gearing up communities to be savvy clients and representative permission givers themselves. And I think we need to do this quickly. Fiona Monkman, an architect at Islington Council for nearly 25 years, has won this year's MJ Long Prize for Excellence in Practice, part of the Architects Journal and Architectural Reviews W Awards. Uh, this is a story that was announced by both the AJ and AR this week. You'll be forgiven if you haven't heard of Monkman before. She is a design team leader within the London Borough's architecture department and a, quote, huge advocate for social housing. Uh, unfortunately, up until now, social housing hasn't always been on the front page of all the glossy architecture magazines, uh, but that is changing. Um, Monkman was awarded this prize. Uh, this is a prize that's open to UK-based female architects, and it's judged on an overall body of work uh, with an emphasis on projects completed within the previous 18 months. Um, Monkman was awarded it for her collective work as part of Islington Architects team working on several social housing projects. Uh, these include Centurion Close, uh, which adds eight two-bedroom council flats to an existing housing estate close to Caledonian Road. Uh, that was on a site that had been deemed unviable for developers. The judges were deeply impressed by her work, saying, quote, Centurion Close is able to infiltrate the nooks and crannies of Caledonian Road. Uh, this work could and should be replicated elsewhere. Um, that's the role, the very important role that these wards play today. And Monkman shows that tenacity is the way to do it and to, the way to get things done. That's the judge's citation. Uh, Ruth Lang, a previous guest of the London, uh, wrote in the Architectural Review in March, quote, Monkman is a huge advocate for the power these schemes hold to beneficially affect lives on a daily basis um, through the spaces provided, the aspirations they set, the improved quality of life and the increased life chances that such care to where we live can bring. Uh, it's the effect on the daily lives of Islington's residents which has the most value for the architecture created. The award, which is named after the acclaimed British Library architect, lecturer and writer Mary Jane M.J. Long, uh, was judged by AKTT2 co-founder Hanif Kara, critic and regular London guest Catherine Slesser and M.J. Long's daughter, Sal Wilson. 
The panel was chaired by AJ Technical Editor Fran Williams, also a recent London guest. Uh, last year, Peter Barber Architects Associate Director Alice Brownfield won the prize in its second year of running. Uh, Brownfield was handed the award for her incredible work on Kiln Place in Camden, uh, a local authority-backed infill project on a London council estate. Um, Leanne, can you paint a picture of Fiona Monkman's work for our listeners? Um, and what do you think about her winning this prestigious prize? Yeah, I'll try and do my best to do justice to Fiona's career, which has been uh, an absolutely fascinating tour de force uh, of, of, of social housing. Um, so Fiona studied architecture in Sheffield and uh, actually did some work uh, experience in the council in the, in the late 80s, which, of course, was the height of Thatcherism, where council housing was sold off left, right and centre and wholesale and no council housing was being built. So she was working in a backdrop where people were living in very tough circumstances and there was widespread poverty. Um, and this contrasted with Britain's post-war mass house building programme, which really freed people from poor living conditions. And I think this really coloured her outlook and influenced her work with the importance of power of housing to impact people's lives, both positively and negatively. So um, over the past decade, um, she's reflected that Tory governments have tried to roll back the public uh, sector. And, and that made her very committed and even more committed to social housing. In terms of her architectural style, she describes this as responsive modernist and working in Islington. Um, this has meant responding to Islington's traditions and vernacular with a modernist interpretation. She really sits in that junction between modernist and Islington's traditional 18th, 19th century street patterns, which are often very constrained. Now, she's worked in Islington for 25 years, and so she knows these streets intimately. She understands the rhythms of everyday life and the individual people that live there. She's empathetic and she listens to the people uh, that live there and what they want from their homes, seeing homes as not just units uh, that we discussed earlier. For me, Fiona's success in winning this prize really speaks of civic pride and dedication at the heart of her work to looking at the wider social benefits that good housing brings and elevating the importance and value of council housing, that it should be as beautiful and high quality as any other type of housing. And she's achieved this through her leadership and tenacity in delivering this beauty and quality and care in sites and project environments that have been deemed unviable. So that's credit to her skill and vision and fighting for her projects. I mean, look, some people turn off when people start talking about architecture awards. I mean, there are a lot of architecture awards, but this one, the MJ Long Prize, is part of the W Awards. Like, that's a suite of awards, which also includes the Jane Drew Prize, which last year went to Kate McIntosh, someone that Open City has been championing a lot, someone that um, gave a, a speech at Dalston in Earth uh, last last month, uh, with a major event with hundreds of people that we put on with London Society and others. Um why why are awards like this so important in architecture, but also beyond in London's built environment culture? Well, I, I think this harks back to why I founded Urbanistas, uh, which I know we're coming on to shortly. Um, but 10 years ago, I was 18 months into a new business. I'd started with no funding, no experience, no clients. Uh, startups were different then. Um, I'd, I'd taken the plunge because I felt I needed to connect my own civic values with my work as a regeneration practitioner. Um, my business is MEND, is all about mending that connection with people and places. But in the course of creating my business and in the 10 years leading up to that, I'd encountered so many amazing women who I connected with and I came away being very inspired and energised by. 
but I didn't see them, I didn't hear them, and I didn't read about them. And why was that? And I kept encountering these women, and I started to feel frustrated by this lack of visibility. We really need to see women and normalise them as leaders, as innovators, and as changemakers. We need to acknowledge the lens that they look through, the questions they ask, the experience they have of cities and spaces. We need to hear women and their ideas for making cities better for everyone. That is why these awards are so important. It shines a light on them and it shows other women and society as a whole the value they bring and inspires more to do the same. So more of this, please. I mean, obviously you were saying, Leanne, you're one of the founders or you're the founder, sorry, you're the founder of Urbanistas Collective uh, celebrating its 10 year anniversary this year. Um, What have been those big achievements over the past 10 years? Um, And obviously, why is the work of the collective more important now than ever? So yeah, we're 10 years old next week and we have a celebration on the 18th of May at uh, ING offices. They're, they're kindly hosting us, so please come and join us. I think, in all honesty, the biggest achievement is that we're still here. You know, we are powered purely by enthusiasm and volunteering. We have absolutely no funding. Um, and uh, I think that that really is at the core of what makes Urbanistas really special. It's entirely open. Uh, we are we are entirely independent and we're we're completely free. So um, and that model has been exported to now cities around the world. We have a very simple structure. We're about providing that platform for women to come together, to share their ideas for making cities better for everyone, and engaging that peer to peer support amongst women to make that idea happen. Uh, We uh, encourage uh, our members to bring an idea to what we call our expo meets. Uh, These are an opportunity for uh, women to hear other women's ideas and hear their ask. And the ask is really important because I think um, we're we're normalised to think that asking for help is, is a sign of weakness. Well, actually, asking for help is really empowering. It empowers the person asking because it it forces them to sort of think clearly about what they need. It empowers the person providing support for that ask to be able to pledge their their help and and utilize their their skills and experience. So I, I think it's um, it's more than ever it's it's important to enable that peer to peer support to help women to help other women and encourage women to be a little bit courageous and explore their potential, grow those leadership skills. And at ten years, I think uh, it's fair to say we've we've had maybe five or six cohorts of, of leadership at, at our chapters. So myself and um, my, my partner, Rachel Fisher, who, who helped, ha- has helped me to grow this over the 10 years, we're really proud of, of our chapter leads. And we've got them, as I say, we've got them in the Northwest, the Northeast. We've got them down in Cardiff. We've got uh, chapters in um, Brisbane. We've got chapters in Sydney, Rotterdam. Um, we we're never fail to be inspired by just the amount of energy that is brought uh, by, by our, our chapters to, to Urbanistas and making it so special. It's absolutely fantastic. And hopefully we'll be able to profile some of those researchers and leaders uh, on the show uh, as the year goes on as part of that 10-year anniversary celebration. Um, we're going to move now to our culture section. Um, um, Big exhibition opening this week uh, is Space at the India Club. Uh, It runs until the 15th of May. Um, uh, The India Club is uh, at the Hotel Strand Continental on the Strand. I don't know if anyone's ever been to it, but um, I've been there once or twice before. It is an extraordinary place. Uh, It's like a kind of a little bubble uh, of history uh, with a really cool bar on the first floor overlooking the newly pedestrianised Aldwych uh, with that church with the magnolia trees 
um outside king's college in somerset house and they serve really good drinks um and food but obviously it's the exhibition that's there it's called space and it's put together by specular assembly um it's a collective uh group with um a number of artists who've put sh- uh, work into it one of the artists is will jennings uh who's going to be on london in the future he's a very prolific twitter commentator people might be familiar with him um so Will's put in a work called Dissension, uh, a mixed media installation channeled through an imagined protagonist living in London's Vauxhall uh, and recording the changing built environment around their home as they slowly get priced out of the capital. Um, the description goes on, he says, The red lights on cranes and newly built towers take on a new meaning of place and in them hopes and fears for the future. The work comprises photogenic installations, video text and lights. Um, Leanne, are you going to check it out? Of course I am be an absolute um fool to miss that and know it's really i i'm really interested in how we create cities in our heads so the city that lives in in our kind of internal narrative and internal memory and, and that really that really speaks to me so I, I really am looking forward to seeing that um so the next big culture item is kind of a global one uh but it's also i think very specific to london uh so it's the eurovision final on saturday uh with essex tiktok star sam Ryder. Uh, who's the UK entry now I don't know this is it's kind of hard to believe it, well, it's weird and it's uncanny but it's true uh, the odds have put uh, Sam Ryder's UK entry as the second most likely to win after Ukraine but there's a good link uh, because um, the story's about space space being a very architectural thing space being the exhibition the name that Will Jennings work is in um, do you know the song Leanne? I, I'm an, an enormous Eurovision fan. This is one of the highlights of my year, so I cannot wait. Um, but um, good luck to Sam. Uh, I, I will be watching. Okay, and then also that brings us on to uh, another little bit of culture going on uh, down Deptford Way. Uh, it's an exhibition of buildings photographed, and modernist buildings in Britain photographed by Chris Matthews at the Gareth Gardner Gallery on Resolution Way. This actually also runs till the 15th of May. Um, and basically what it is, is um, Matthews uh, did a kind of photographic tour of Britain's most celebrated modernist buildings. It was part of a commission uh, to capture 300 of these buildings for the new Owen Hathaway book, The Guide to the Modernist Buildings of Britain, something we've also profiled on the show. An extraordinary book, it's like the book to buy this year if you're going to get one book, architecture book. It's a lovely book and it's for a big architecture book, it's amazing. You know, it, it's, it really is a great one. Um, so Matthews travelled all over Britain, took pictures of all kinds of different buildings um and uh, th- a selection of them uh feature in in this uh this gallery space the gareth gardner gallery uh, i just looked at my list there's another tiny uh culture note okay this, this qualifies as culture because we were built environment show the northern line bank branch is opening on the 16th of may yay <laughs> i worked get... on that project you worked on it i'm quite proud that it's uh, i worked on that and crossrail which is also yeah. opening this month so well, i'll be looking forward to whizzing through the tunnels uh, that i that i worked on um and and yeah so it brings it a, a lot more alive for me personally but i think um yeah it's going to be great well thank you leanne thank you for making those projects happen a cultural highlight for us all um okay well it's been a great pleasure to feature you on the show um 
Where can our listeners keep up to speed on the projects you're working on, the things you're writing? Is there a website or socials they should look to? So my Twitter handle is Leanne Men's City. And we're out actually launching our new Urbanistas website at our birthday. So I encourage everybody to check out urbanistas.org.uk. And my own platform is leannehartley.co.uk. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.